Mark gave me this book uh, uh, the last time he's here. Did you read the whole book already, Mark? Uh, I'm about two-thirds of the way through it. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, The God Who Is There, it's outstanding. I mean, it is really good. I don't mean that I agree with, uh, as you would with anything, uh, would not, I'm saying just about anything, with 100% with all the thinking behind it. But for somebody that approaches Christianity and the existence of God from strictly a philosophical point of view, I don't think I've read any better. He was, uh, he really uh, uh, takes the for various philosophies that people have lived by and thought by and pursues them to their ultimate conclusion and then looks at the lives of the individuals uh, who have espoused those philosophies. And, he, and then when he gets into Christianity even, uh, he takes some of the liberal theologians who have really been a negative feature so far as the Bible is concerned and pursues their logic to its ultimate conclusion. And then he winds up examining uh, a historic Christianity. He deals with the concept of, of absolute values, uh, gives proof of the fact that outside of the Bible and God, there, there can be no, no such thing as absolutes in, in values. But it's ex exceptionally good. It's a little slower reading than some uh, because he's pretty deep, but it's uh, very good. Reminded me a lot of, uh, uh, ooh, I'm trying to think of on the Geisler, that's right. The, remind me some of, of Geisler in that uh, the thinking is, is like that again, you know, very deep in his thinking, but if you take the time to wade through it, I'd say this reads faster than Geisler. I, I had to, you know, every concept I read with Geisler, I had to go back and think it through. And, and sometimes I'd read several pages before I figured out just where he was going with it. But this guy, you can pretty well see where he's going from the first. He's uh, maybe a little better writer from that standpoint. But I could, uh, when I got into that, I could see why he is has been such a, uh, you know, a successful writer. But anyway, it's Francis Schaeffer, uh, the God, God who is there. Um, tonight we're going to begin uh, looking at uh, uh, material based on this book, Evolution and Faith, by J.D. Thomas. Uh, J.D. Thomas is a professor at Abilene Christian University, uh, has his doctor's degree in biology. Uh, believes in the inspiration of the Bible, also is extremely well studied in science. Uh, reminds me a lot of John Clayton so far his, is his willingness to be objective uh, with material on both sides of the issue. Uh, before getting into this, to see the importance of the study itself, I thought I'd uh, introduce a few little books to you. Uh, this book here uh, came out of the library at um, Swiss Memorial School. I pulled it as a sample. And all of it called Dinosaurs by Herbert Zim, which is fine, but all the way through in reading the book, uh, you have statements like dinosaurs were common, common everyday animals for a period of some hundred million years. About 75 million years ago, the whole group began to die out, and all were gone before millions of years before the first man lived. And then there's a little chart stating the age all the way up to man. Now, nothing wrong with that statement as such, except for one thing. Everything in here is stated as an absolute fact. There's, it's, there's not the word even probably or maybe or our scientists uh, theorize this. It's just simply written. In fact, that is a common practice in child, children's books. 
to, to just simply write things as facts. Well, the point is the children take them as facts uh, when, they're written, when they're written as facts. Uh, this here, prehistoric cavemen, uh, nothing wrong there except that it uh, uh, shows, for example, the layers uh, in the earth, uh, the geological layers, and then it begins with early Nathandral man, comes through late Nathandral, early Cro-Magnon, late Cro-Magnon, then on up to man. Again, nothing wrong with that except for the fact that they do not exist uh, in that order. In other words, that, that every one of those characters are men and they all existed at about the same time. There's, there's, no, there's no evolution there over a long period of time. And so the approach is, is completely biased based on their theory. In other words, they, they have a theory, and then they simply present this other as fact based on that theory they have. Now, the interesting thing to me there, I don't want to read this name because it involves somebody in the community, but the person here, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, that donated this to the library are people that, uh, if you were to ask them, were they believers in God and believers in the Bible? And, and at this time, when they donated this, they were faithful members of a particular church in the community. And they bought the book, donated it, and didn't realize that uh, the author is an atheist who is promoting organic evolution from the word go. Uh, this book here, also taken from the library at, the, at Swiss Memorial School, and uh, Again, uh, a little statement here, like you can see how the earth began, and then uh, it comes all the way down to life. And it, uh, it says, the first living things grew in the sea. They were neither animals nor plants. Scientists know very little about them because they were so tiny. Very slowly, these tiny living things changed, and they became plants growing in the sea. There were no animals yet because there was no oxygen for them to breathe. Plants make oxygen as they grow. Eventually, there was enough oxygen for animals to grow in the sea. Some of the first animals were jellyfish, sponges, and these like. And he continues on with the story. Again, if you'll notice, it's stated as facts. There's nothing there about theory or anything of that nature that it is uh, the author believes the theory of organic evolution. And based on that theory that he has, he then writes children's books in a very factual way. Well, what is true here is also true of uh, the science books that we have in elementary school. The authors are people who believe in organic evolution, and they write children's books, children's material, in a factual way, and that child simply doesn't have the ability. He hasn't developed the thinking process yet uh, to sit down and to challenge all of these things and to, to know what is theory and, and what is fact. Uh, in the in this community, this would be a a very untypical community, so far as America is concerned, in that the vast majority of the people in this this community would believe in God. Most of them, whether they practice it or not, would believe the Bible was inspired of God. And whether they may not be practicing it or living by it, but they would acknowledge that they they believe, you know, that it that it is right. Uh, a very high percentage of them go to church and all, and those are the kids that uh, come there to the school where I'm principal. But in our books, every last one that has anything to do with origins, it, without exception, that I so and I've screened them. In fact, I've 
just spend hundreds of dollars this week uh, buying books. That's what I've been doing for about three or four hours every day this week is going through books that I'm buying for the library with a chapter two money. And uh, everything I come in contact with that deals with origins in any sense is written by an atheist from an organic evolutionist position. There is not a single solitary book of all the companies that send me books and I preview and pick out of them and put in the library and all. There's not a single one that sends me anything that even mentions God or some intelligence as, as being a, even a possible theory for the origin or the beginning of life. And I found that to be true. Last year I was on the science textbook committee for the county and it was true there. I didn't accomplish anything because everything I had to pick from was written from an atheist perspective. All right, now, if this is going to be counteracted in any way, and by the way, I'd approach this study a little different if, if it wasn't for the fact that I know all of you are, are already believers. So I'm, in this lesson, I'm approaching it with the assumption that everybody here is believers, and so it's going to be from the standpoint of trying to reach out uh, to those that are not, but we we wouldn't assume some of the things that will be assumed if uh, if the if you were different or we had some different ones among you. But if this tide is stemmed in any way, if it's counteracted, uh, if the the imprint uh, on the minds of the young are, is stayed, it's going to be people like yourself, or it won't be done. It's just simply not going to be done. Every school out there has those same books, all those children are being brought up with the same material, the same science books, uh, the same type of material in the library. Uh, the vast majority of Christians uh, either are just ignorant and oblivious to what is going on, uh, or they're too busy doing something else. But I mean, it's, that's, that's what's going on, and, and the, the minds are being affected, and what you're seeing in this generation is nothing in comparison to what you're going to see in the, in the generation to come. So the importance then of the study in this particular area, uh, Mark, when you go to uh, Czechoslovakia, I think you're going to find that when you get into study, based on the conversations I had with Jason, that one of the most important things that uh, you can master is you know, some of these concepts and to, and to have an understanding of it. Okay, uh, all of that was said just to try to help us to appreciate the importance of the the study itself, uh, if you're going to defend uh, the Bible as inspired and the, and the existence of God. And remember now that when we mention about the inroads of atheism and all that's being done out there to promote the naturalistic or humanistic way of thinking, I don't want to leave the impression that all of these people are just terrible people who are trying to corrupt the world. Uh, and because that would be wrong, I don't believe that. I believe that that many of those people are very sincere, conscientious people who just as sincerely believe the Bible is, is a book of myths as you sincerely believe it's not. And many of them sincerely do not believe in God because they don't believe the evidence warrants it. They are products of a certain environment. And so I'm saying think that a lot of these people uh, are very decent, honest individuals who are making decisions based on the information their, they, their mind has to operate on. For example, that as they go all through school, this is the material they read. You know what they see on TV. Uh, and uh, a very big percentage are not going to any church or in any Bible study situation that uh, counteracts that in any way. 
and you know what they have when they get to college, and so that uh, these people are, are taking the information they have and making what they think is a logical choice. And so it's, it's really wrong, and it will get us nowhere, I believe, to approach them as if they are some sort of hideous criminals that are out to willfully destroy the Word of God. That's really not it. Uh, they're just as sincere and conscientious as we are, uh, many of them, and they just simply are operating on different pieces of, of information. And our job is to get the kind of information in their mind that they're not aware of, and also let them know that you're aware of why they believe the way they do and, and can a answer their problems. Um, books like this, The Other Side of Evolution, uh, Why We Believe in Creation and Not in Evolution, uh, you're not going to find that in many libraries. I mean, there's a lot of good materials like that, but you're not going to find them in many libraries. The reason is, uh, several reasons. Uh, one is that many of them are written by uh, people who are ministers or who are advocating uh, uh, Christianity. And in our society, it's, it's considered negative to uh, be religious in any way. Uh, we need Christians who, are like this fellow here, J.D. Thomas, are scientists and, and can actually approach these things uh, from that point of view and give the evidence uh, for the existence of God and the, and the inspiration of the Bible. Okay, first point, and before we get into this, I'm on page uh, uh, 3i here to start off in the foreword. Uh, for those of you that have the book, anybody have any observations based on what we've looked at so far? I think that, I don't know if this, I think this relates, but like this, that article in the U.S. News on creation and all, mm -hmm. it's pretty interesting that it's still the only competitor. I mean, all the other things, like the Hindus have a, the, the world was sitting on the back of four elephants and on a turtle swimming in the milk, that's obviously false. Right. The only, I mean, there's a major magazine that's got a whole story on creation. I mean, and how, and how that it's a debate back and forth. And, uh, and so that people... It's something that won't go away. You know, it's it's there, and, and you've got to deal with it. And it's it's still the only competitor. To okay, what Mark said is good. That after you know all these thousands of years, and despite all the ingenuity, that we often, in fact, we often ask, why do atheists spend so much time attacking the Bible? Why aren't they attacking the Vedas and and these other books? Uh, and as Mark said, there's no competition uh, to the theory of organic revolu uh, evolution except the Bible. And even now, when a national magazine like U.S. News and World Report deals with origins, they only consider two possibilities, and that's organic evolution and the God of the Bible. That's the only, that's the only two possibilities that they're involved in. And so that, that they're acknowledging, even with those two possibilities, that you're at least on, on the side of, of the God of the Bible dealing with something that is logical. Uh, by the way, the, uh, in his book, the book by Schaefer on the God who is there, uh, he does a good job with that, Mark, in, in taking, you know, uh, the God of the Bible and contrasting that with uh, pantheism and some of these other religions and showing that it is absolutely the only logical approach and that it's the only thing that meets our intellectual needs, you know, when we examine anything. Uh, first thing, I think, to keep in mind when we examine origins, whether it's organic evolution, by the way, when I say organic evolution, I say that in opposition to theistic evolution. Theistic evolution 
is the belief that God started it and then it evolved up to a present sense. Uh, atheistic evolution is organic evolution. That is that life popped into existence by chance, uh, the universe, uh, all the cosmos, the galaxies, solar system, Earth, everything is here by accident. And that uh, matter would be eternal uh, from, the from the atheist perspective. Something has to always be. And therefore that which always has been is, is lifeless matter. And then the theist is one, of course, that has God starting the process. All right, in organic evolution, first observation he makes that every Christian, it's simple, and every Christian ought to have it in their mind. And that is the, the organic evolutionist, or the atheist, when considering this thing of origins, tries to make it appear to the minds of people they're dealing with that the choice is between fact and faith. The fact uh, that of the science uh, and the faith of uh, Christianity or religion. And he points out that this is just simply a big lie. The choice is between faith and faith. That whether you believe organic evolution or whether you believe that God created, either choice is a matter of faith. Nobody can talk about origins from a standpoint of fact. Uh, for example, the atheist position uh, begins with spontaneous generation, life popping into existence uh, from lifeless matter. It's never been demonstrated. It's never been observed. And so obviously, if anybody believes it, uh, a theory is something that you can conceptualize in your mind, but you have never observed it. And so you take some facts and you conceptualize a concept that will explain those facts you think. And so uh, uh, whatever a person thinks about origins is in the conceptual stage in his mind where he takes facts and he conceptualizes those facts. Okay, there's no question. The Hebrew writer states plainly in Hebrews 11 and 3 that by faith we understand that the world was made from things that are invisible, things that do not exist. And we start off by saying that we believe that, uh, that in everywhere that we look, we see intelligence and we see design. And, and we say that we believe that something cannot come from nothing, uh, something is, therefore something had to always exist. And to say that uh, intelligence came from dead matter is to have an effect that's greater than the cause. And so we put all of this together, uh, the complexity of the universe, the complexity of the solar systems, the galaxies, the complexity of man himself and all of nature and the mathematical precision that we see. And we say that we cannot conceive of that in any way other than an intelligent an intelligence behind it. That's what, we're, that's what David is saying in Psalms 19 when he says the heavens are declaring the glory of God and the firmament his handiwork. And it's what Paul's saying in Romans 1.20 when he speaks of the invisible God is declared by the things that are. Okay, so there's no question. We make it clear, yes, we believe that God created by faith. But that faith is not a leap in the dark. Yeah, it's a faith based on evidence. On the other hand, the organic evolutionist believes what he does by faith. But then the question becomes, where is his evidence? In other words, where does he 
where does he get his evidence? And this is what that he would needs to be pushed for. Where, where is your evidence? Uh, that uh, can't, for example, the first thing he's going to have to prove, well, let's go. If, uh, if you have to have, uh, if the evolutionist has to have matter as being eternal, what is the first thing this guy has to prove? Matter is eternal. Okay, now, he, he hasn't been around forever, so he can't prove that, so he's going to have to present evidence, right? But then the problem, by the way, uh, this uh, Hugh Ross, I thought he had, by the way, I'm about, uh, I guess, a fourth of the way on those tapes listening to him. He does an excellent job uh, with that. What is happening now is, and uh, Hugh Ross and his tapes uh, makes the observation that contrary to what a lot of people believe now, that more than 90% of all the top scientists in the world, these are the people with doctor's degrees and the hard scientists, believe in a creator. And he says that, that they believe in a creator for one simple reason, and that is the evidence leaves them no choice. And said that, uh, for example, that says the Christians were at one time so busy arguing against something like the Big Bang Theory uh, that they didn't even seem to realize that the Big Bang Theory is in perfect harmony with what you read in Genesis that the Big Bang Theory says there was a beginning, that uh, we live in a universe where all evidence, in fact, this, these, I shouldn't say, uh, facts, all the facts that we have show that everything in our universe is moving further and further apart, and the galaxies constantly are getting further and further apart. Well, then, obviously, if you was to reverse that process, you have to eventually go back to a point where it all comes together. And so... He goes into a lot of very sophisticated measurements, uh, dating of the uh, things dealing with the stars and planets and things like that, and winds up with the, with the statement that, that you simply cannot get away from matter having a beginning. And so this rules out that all organic evolution was based on matter being eternal. Something has to be eternal. So then the question is, what is there behind matter? Well, that's what we're calling... God, and then not only that, of course, that after this explosion, everything doesn't just fall into place in a haphazard way. Uh, everything falls into place in, in a very logical, rational, and design type of way so far as our senses perceive it. And what I mean by that, uh, as our senses perceive, when uh, you look at this room, uh, it's not haphazard. It's obvious to your mind that the chairs and the table and the light and the pictures and everything, that there is some kind of order and reason behind it. Uh, if the table was up against the wall, the couches were turned upside down, uh, the lamp was uh, lying over, uh, the, the picture on the wall was, was upside down, uh, some of the boards were sideways and some of them were straight up and down, uh, then that would be evidence that somebody just stood back and threw this stuff. Uh, but, but you have the opposite type of evidence. Well, we have the same thing when we look at the universe. There's, there's, there's no evidence uh, that, it just, that it just happened at random chance. In every way we look, we see order and mathematical precision rather than chance. And then we got a beginning. Okay, so now, uh, just like when you're in, uh, starting in, in Genesis, Mark, uh, in Czechoslovakia, that the first thing you're establishing with this person, that uh, uh, he's there with uh, the facts of science, and you're there with the faith of Christianity, that yes, you believe by faith, but 
he believes, if he believes organic evolution, he believes it by faith. And then the question is, where does the evidence stand? And you can point blank make the statement to him that, uh, uh, that 90 more, according to the, the statement by Hugh Ross, who is himself a former atheist, that more than 90% of our top hard scientists are believers in a creator. Now, I didn't say that 90% were believers in the God of the Bible now, and he makes that clear, but they are believers uh, in a creator, and that's all you're wanting to establish at, at this point. Okay, so whatever an individual believes in, it, it's a matter of faith. The question is, uh, uh, where, where is the evidence? Okay, now, uh, another statement he makes, and it, it's true, and uh, faith in God stands apart from empirical proof. Now, does everybody understand what we're saying when we say faith in God stands apart from empirical proof? Every now and then somebody will say, yes, you can prove the existence of God, and somebody else says, no, you cannot prove the existence of God, and they can both be right. They can both be right. Everybody understand what we're saying when we say that the existence of God stands apart from empirical proof. I, sort of like um, a jury. Um, they could be very convinced that someone murdered someone. And Okay. Yet, but yet they didn't see it. And so someone else may say, well, you know, that it's not empirical. You can't prove it. But yet the evidence was so strong that we don't have doubt. Okay. So, well, it'd be similar. In other words, that you've got certain facts there, fingerprints, the gun, the powder burn, uh, witnesses, etc. But that is still not, you, you have empirical facts. But to have empirical proof, you would have to see him pull the trigger himself. So, so you can point, when somebody says that you cannot prove God empirically, that's right, you can't. But then what you need to be able to do is to put in that person's mind, listen, most of what you believe cannot be proven to you empirically. That you can take certain facts that are empirical. Empirical means you can touch it and, and, and you can see it or smell it and deal with it in a physical way. But the event itself, you didn't see. And you're, you're, so you're taking empirical facts, but then uh, the event itself cannot be empirically proved. All right, now, historical events cannot be empirically pr proved. You can take facts and furnish proof. Now, this is the difference between science and history and philosophy. True science involves empirical proof. And uh, the word science itself means to know. And so in true science, if you have come up with what you say is a scientific fact, a scientific fact is something that somebody else can actually go through the same process and wind up, wind up demonstrating the same thing that you did. And if you cannot do that, you cannot, that is not in the realm of scientific fact. Now, you can have scientific theories, but a scientific fact has to be something, for example, H2O is water, that's a scientific fact you can take, or uh, H2O2 is hydrogen peroxide, uh, that you can put those elements together and come up with that water or hydrogen peroxide, that is scientific fact. Uh, but, but most, uh, uh, and, and the fallacy now that the scientist many times uh, conveys to the human mind is that if you can't put something in the realm of scientific fact, then you really can't believe it or you can't prove it. No, you can't empirically prove it. 
But that don't mean that you can't prove it. It just means you can't empirically prove it. And the very scientist himself believes most of what he believes short of empirical proof. Okay, and everybody sees the difference there so far as dealing with uh, somebody else. When he says you cannot uh, prove God, you can. We believe you can prove God, but can you prove God empirically? No, you cannot. But most other things that you believe you cannot empirically prove either, the reason being that we are finite human beings that are confined to a body and we can only see so far and only hear so much and only smell so far. And so because of our physical limitations uh, that we cannot empirically prove a whole lot of things, maybe most of the things that we deal with, we cannot empirically prove them. Okay, uh, now he makes another statement here that I think is good. It says, uh, the masses in our society and probably most among those of intelligentsia, he's talking about the, the doctor's degree people and, and the educated people, are merely passive followers of those they consider to be authorities in science. And notice what he says, the mass in our society, and he says this includes the most among those who have college degrees, are merely passive followers of those they consider to be authorities in science. I don't know what the percentage would be, but it'd be interesting. Among college graduates who say they believe in organic ev evolution, I would wonder what percentage has actually studied it. I mean, they, they've come in contact with professors. They believed it. They've read those statements in books. But I wonder what percentage have actually studied it out and can do a good job of explaining it to you and telling you why they believe it in the way they do it. Oh, they'll know that they can say, Oh, organic evolution is that we have evolution from the amoeba up to man. Okay, that's a statement of, of what you believe. Now the, now the question, what he's saying here, ask them why they believe that. Uh, anybody can state what they believe. Uh, the hard part is, is telling why you believe it, and it's when you have to tell why you believe it that you find out if you really studied it out and been honest and objective with the facts or you have just sat back passively and been taught something. For example, in religion, I think we would all agree here tonight that most people's religious convictions, uh, even among Christendom, on various doctrines, is, is a result of passively sitting back and being preached something from a certain perspective, that only a small percentage of people have honestly investigated things for themselves. Would everybody agree with that, or anybody want to... Uh, differ. I mean, I believe that in uh, the various churches, it's no accident that uh, uh, that Baptist families tend to produce Baptist and Methodist families, Methodist and Church of Christ families, Church of Christ, etc. You know, there's no, that obviously that uh, that people are sitting back and are primarily influenced by the preaching that they they actually hear. But he said that's true of the evolutionists also, and that most of these people are not that well studied. And Mark, I think one thing you'll find in the situation you're in, that although you're going to meet people that, are, that have this strong conviction uh, from an atheist and will have these feelings for organic evolution, I think you're going to find that most of them cannot give you good arguments for what they believe. Uh, all the years that I've worked in Christian evidences and have studied with different people and I've studied with people that had very good educations and uh, in a scientific realm and all, and I have simply never studied with anybody 
I'm not saying that I know they exist now. That we're talking the top echelon. I obviously haven't been up there, but I'm saying the ones I've studied with have never been able to sit down and just give good logical reasons for what they believed. Uh, you know, I remember uh, what was the uh, lady's husband's name in Huntsville that I studied with so long, and then we ran into him at John Clayton's seminar, and he's now a Christian. Carol Dunn was her name. Um. I can't think of their last name. What was his name? I can't remember. I studied with him week after Hayes. week after. Hayes, yeah. Hayes. Studied with him, uh, first name, his first name. I studied with him week after week after week. Uh, mm -hmm. All right, very high degree, a graduate degree in chemistry. And uh, had uh, been brought up in a particular denomination, had thrown aside the Bible and embraced organic evolution. Okay, and that was, and he was working in, in that particular area. And we studied. Larry. Larry, right. But he never one single solitary time gave me any evidence for what he believed, other than the fact that his whole world, where he had gone to school, uh, his professors, uh, the people that were with him, they all believed that. But he really could not articulate his thinking. Well, uh, we, Barbara and I ran into him last summer at Lebanon. He was at the seminar that, seminar that uh, John Clayton was given, and she let us know, well, he did too come up that he was con he had been converted I think a few years back I can't remember how long but uh, two or three years ago I believe and she said he cut the TV off for yeah. over a year and didn't watch it at all and read the Bible completely through yeah cut the TV off and read the Bible completely through said he had a lot of catching up to do but uh, I'm saying he had a very good mind I, he does have a very good mind um, another fellow in Huntsville that studied with, uh, again, approached me initially as an atheist, responded to a radio program, a very high degree, working in the scientific realm, and about five or six weeks later, we baptized he and his wife. Uh, that uh, uh, John Clayton or Hugh Ross and people like that can just multiply that kind of thing. So I'm saying, don't be backward. We just simply need more Christians who are studied in this area. That uh, just as we have people brought up as Catholic and, and Baptist, etc., uh, the humanistic world is bringing up people as organic evolutionists for this very reason here. They, it starts down in elementary, goes all through high school, into college, and they really don't know the evidences for what they believe. And, and when you begin to give them evidences as to why you believe in God and the inspiration of the Bible, most of the time, they're just very impressed. Uh, Barbara and I was sitting in a, a room the other day uh, we bought a car. We went back to the uh, service area. I forget what they did. Had, we took it back there for some reason. Uh, but anyway, that while we was there, I got in a conversation with this guy. And in a very, yeah, among other things, among, in a very dogmatic way, he just stated that, uh, you know, the, some, the Bible was myth. Uh, Paul was an absolute idiot, most horrible person that he had ever read from. Uh, he separated Paul from Jesus, and uh, very strong dogmatic statements based on his reading. Well, then I just began to talk with him in a nice way about some archaeological discoveries and the attitude of historians and scholars towards the Bible and, and Paul's teaching, harmonizing with Christ, and everything like that. And he just sat back there in a very polite way and listened uh, and, I mean, he didn't walk out of there converted, but I'm saying that he was hearing information that, that he hadn't come in contact with. He listened in a very polite and courteous way. And I told her, I said, I'd love to 
be able to have contact and study with him again. He was, he was saying things out of his environment. That's what he's read. That's what he's come in contact with. He has certain reasons that I won't go into for wanting to believe some of the things he said about Paul. But still, uh, he, he's open. I'm saying a lot of these people are open to be converted if we just simply are willing to study and to get the information to reach, reach, reason with those people. Uh, in the first chapter of the book, he deals with the fact that uh, the trend in the Western, Western world has been towards naturalism. Uh, God is being kicked out of the picture that the majority of the thinkers uh, in, uh, have, are leaning in, a, in the direction of strictly a humanistic. In other words, when I said that 90% of the scientists uh, believe in a creator because of the evidence, but remember we said also that that's not to say they believe in the God of the Bible. The vast majority of, of, of the top thinkers in the Western world are very humanistic. God is not a personal God uh, that you have any dealing with. They do not believe in Jesus as the Son of God. They do not believe the Bible is inspired of God. And by the way, that as Clayton brought out in his latest publication and some very good articles, that uh, the atheists who reject God, for the most part, are not your hard scientists as the public has been led to believe, but rather it's the social scientist. Did you, did, I found that interesting. Did you see that article, Mark? Any of you get Clayton's? Yeah. He, he gave a survey, taken in the, a Gallup survey, and uh, uh, it points out that the vast majority of the physicists and the hard scientists uh, actually believe in God and have even a high degree of respect for the Bible. But in your social scientists, you're way down there at, uh, among your top social scientists, the ones with the doctor's degrees and all, you're way down there at about 50% who, are, who would be in the, fall in the atheist category. And then among your humanities, it's high. But it's really the, the hard scientists are higher than all of them so far as their, their belief in God. And that, that was interesting, at least, at least to me. Um, the, uh, he deals with uh, Darwin. And before Darwin, there was a man by the name of Hegel, H-E-G-E-L. And let's see, the dating on Hegel was 769 to 1831. Hegel came up with a theory of the evolution of ideas. In other words, that every single solitary uh, idea, piece of information people believe is a result of evolving. That what, what you have in the history of man is people throw their ideas out, they clash, and then there is a synthesis with the best of both being taken, and then we move on and we get ready for the next stage. The documentary hypothesis that we looked at uh, some weeks back uh, came out of uh, Hegel's theory of the evolution of ideas. And the documentary hypothesis uh, simply initially said that Moses could not have written what we believe Moses wrote at the time he did because man simply had not had enough time to evolve to that high level of morality. And so based on that hypothesis, uh, Moses and the dating uh, was pushed aside, not because of any hard evidence, but based on that hypothesis. The hypothesis was based on Hegel's philosophy of the evolution of ideas. Well, first came Hegel, then when Darwin came along later on, the, the thinking, the minds of the thinking and educated people had been prepared. And so then it was just a natural step into bi biological evolution. 
in, in the way that Darwin proposed it. So Hegel actually set the mind and got people ready. In fact, it was interesting to study that the theory of evolution has been around a whole lot longer than Darwin. I mean, you can go all the way back to before Christ for the, for the theory of evolution. It wasn't until after people's minds had been prepared by the age of rationalization and theories such as Hegel that then the thinking people were, was ready. Uh, in other words, had Darwin published his book a hundred years before, it probably wouldn't have sold. It probably would have never got off the ground. But uh, the preparation had been done and every, the world was ready uh, for his thinking. He then goes into the, the fruits of social Darwinism and arrives at the fact that, uh, yeah, in the, the book itself, that social Darwinism gave us Hitler, uh, gave us Stalin, uh, that uh, uh, Hitler's entire thinking was influenced by Darwin, Nischke, and Sigmund Freud, uh, all three of them atheists. And, and you wind up with a man. We look at Hitler as doing some cruel things. But if you believe what Hitler believed philosophically, he was consistent. I'm saying Hitler was actually more consistent in his thinking. He was not a nut. He was more consistent in his thinking than those people today who claim to be atheists and at the same time uh, attribute some value to human life. Uh, Hitler was consistent. Uh, if Sigmund Freud and Nischke and, and those people were right and Darwin is right, then man is no more than an animal and it makes perfect sense to kill the weak and to breed the strong and continue to promote to some, isn't that what we do with cattle? And horses, we want this super horse and the super corn and the super cattle and so we do that with biology and we don't think we're some kind of nut because we want the superior corn are the superior cattle or the superior dog, then why is it wrong with man? I mean, think about it. If you're, if you're going to rule God out, how can you say that Hitler was wrong in his idea of trying to breed a superior humanity by weeding out what he conceived to be the weak? He, do, he was doing exactly what we do in the animal kingdom. And so that Hitler just simply took the, that philosophy and pursued it to its ultimate conclusion. And if you're talking with somebody that is atheistic, that uh, tell him he is really not accepting the full implication of his belief unless he's willing to accept that, that man is just simply an animal and that uh, breeding and, and promoting the fittest and killing out the weakest would be just as natural and just as, just as rational as, as doing it in the animal kingdom or in the plant kingdom. Now. In uh, the dividing up the book, he uh, divides evolution up, and these are two important words, and I use different words for simplicity, but this, this is really the biological terms, macroevolution and microevolution, okay? Uh, anybody here that has a strong biology background? Anybody? Uh, okay, but macroevolution, we could, uh, I use, I prefer the term vertical. Macroevolution is when you take the amoeba and move up to man. From the protozoa to the metazoa to the sponge, uh, then to the vertebrates, uh, to the fish, 
the amphibians, the reptiles, the bird, the mammal, okay? That is uh, macroevolution, all right? Microevolution is the changes within a particular species. That's microevolution, changes within a species. And so uh, when you look at humans, uh, as to the three different races that we divide ourselves into, that is uh, microevolution. Uh, uh, when you look at all the different type of dogs, that's microevolution. Uh, new species do come into existence, okay? That's all microevolution. All right, now, here's his point. Microevolution is a fact, and you can speak of it factually. And so when somebody says that, uh, that I don't, uh, and Christians sometimes make this mistake, they just point blank say, I don't believe in evolution, and here is this person who is familiar with what we're designating as microevolution, and he's thinking you're ignorant and, and you're prejudiced, you know. Never make the statement uh, that you don't believe in evolution. Microevolution is a fact, okay? Macroevolution is a hypothesis. It has never been demonstrated. There is no hard evidence for it. Notice I said no hard evidence. There's no empirical evidences for it. Uh, that you have to conceptualize it without the evidence for it. And what I mean by conceptualizing it without the evidence, we can see how that the amoeba is simple. And we start here with a protozoa, one-celled animal, metazoa, mini-cell. Uh, we have the sponge here. And then we move up, like I said. And so we can conceptualize that this thing evolved and changed from the simple to the complex. Okay? That's a hypothesis, the zoa uh, and the metazoa. And then we need to have something between uh, the, uh, the invertebrate and the vertebrate. And then when we come up here to the reptile, and we have the uh, mammal going off here and the bird there, we need something between the reptile and the bird. So there's nothing, so when I say there's no, you can literally say there's no evidence it is, it is only a, a hypothesis is something that you can actually conceptualize because of looking at certain facts. But before you have a valid theory, you should be able to present some evidences to work up to that point. And I'm saying that uh, according to all the facts of science, and I shouldn't say I'm saying, I'm saying that uh, this guy who's got his doctor's degree in biology and quotes others who are not Christians who have their doctors for embology, there, there is nothing there. So there, there is, you cannot say that there is evidence for macroevolution. Okay, then why do people believe in macroevolution? We said they look at microevolution and they say since that's a fact, that means that, that macroevolution is a possibility. And then what happens in the textbooks when you look at all the textbooks that deal with organic evolution, they'll have an example of the horse, and they'll have something that looks like a dog, and the years will pass, and, and over here it becomes a horse. But in reality, it's a horse all the way through. That is microevolution. That is change within a particular species, uh, change within a genora. And, 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 and that, that nobody argues with that. And, and they'll take uh, different apes, or they'll even take different mans, like uh, a Nathandral man and, and Peking man, etc. Well, they're still men. You know, we don't question. There's a difference between a pygmy and a giant. 
There's a difference between a black man and a white man and an oriental. But all of that is microevolution. Uh, to have macro, you've got to show evidence that is moving vertically up the line. And so we need to be careful then, I'm saying as Christians, number one, never say that evolution is false. Correct other Christians who do. Uh, point out that evolution can be divided up into vertical evolution, which is macro, or microevolution, which is horizontal. And that horizontal evolution is a fact. But this over here is a hypothesis, and there are simply no facts to back it up. Uh, would evolution would that fall under micro or macro? What kind of evolution? Say a species is uh, misplaced somewhere. Micro. Micro. Sure would. And, and that's, in fact, the, uh, another thing he goes out here, the survival of the fittest would fall into that category. Uh, what happens to develop uh, new species? And by the way, he does the best job on this in an understandable way of any I've read. You know, I wish some of the stuff I've read in biology books was as clear as what he has. But if uh, to have different species, you, here you have some creatures that are all, we'll say, the same species. But then due to a flood or an earthquake or some big event and all, they are separated. And then based on their environment and everything, differences began to take place based on the environment. Differences in size because of the different diet. Uh, different, they're, they're, they're in a different environment that they're living on. They're eating different foods. They're being affected in a different way. Well, then when they reach the point that they can no longer breed together, then we call them another species. Okay, so that as long as they can interbreed together, that we, we're dealing with the same species. When they no longer can, then we've got another species. But I'm saying that, that the biologists can actually go back through the years and show how various species uh, develop. And, and yet they would still be of the same. For example, the domesticated cat uh, is a different species from the lion. They obviously uh, cannot mate, and the same with the other type cats, but they're still within the same genera. Uh, now, one thing he brings out, um, when you classify things from a biological standpoint, you start up with phyla, classes, orders, families, genera, and species, okay? From within phyla, classes, orders, and families, there is absolutely no evidence for any change in the groupings. In other words, there has never been anything that's moved from one phyla to another phyla. There's never been anything that's from within a particular phyla that's moved from one class to another class. From within a particular class, there's never been anything that's moved from one order to another order. From within a particular order, there's never been anything that's moved from one family to another family. But once you get down to the genera, there are changes there and we can see the development of different type of, of species. And so then the question becomes in Genesis, when everything is to produce after its own kind, well then obviously kind, in the way that it's used there, would parallel genera, not species, but genera, in the way that, uh, that we name the groupings today. It would not parallel phyla, classes, orders, families, uh, or, or, or anything else but it would, it would parallel genera. All right, then what happens 
Genesis just says kinds. Sometimes Christians come along and they have made kinds species. Okay? That was their interpretation. But then when I'm saying scientific fact comes along and says no, that there is changes in the as high up as the genera, but not in the family. Well then to to harmonize what you have as scientific fact and the Bible, you would have to say that kind there would be parallel to what we call genera. Alright, then the question becomes, why should a Christian force species? Keep in mind this whole thing of phyla, classes, orders, family, genera, species, it's our terminology and our grouping. We do it. It's, it's us trying to study things and group them. Why should we try to force that on that word in the Bible? There's no reason to. And so what he advocates and does in a beautiful way, Clayton does the same thing, Hugh Ross does the same thing, and a lot of others out there, is that uh, recognize that the God of nature is also the God of the Bible. Don't try to force a conflict. That use them both. And what we have, where we run into problems is when theologians study only the Bible, have an attitude that you don't even have to study science, but yet they're going to supply the interpretation of science, and they're going to, and, and in, no matter what the scientists come up with, they're going to force that scientific fact uh, to, to blend in with the Bible. A good example, of course, with, is going back to Copernicus and Galileo. Uh, the church was teaching uh, that the earth was the center of the universe, and that's what the church was teaching. And he went back to Aristotle and, and his theory, and the church thought it sounded good, so they bought into it. So that was the teaching of the, of the Catholic Church. Well, now, Galileo, Copernicus posed as a theory that it was the sun that was the center of our solar, of our solar system, and not the earth. He posed it as a theory. But Galileo, with better and improved instruments, proved it. And so by the time Galileo got through with it, it is an absolute proven fact that it's the sun that's the center and the earth revolves around it. So here you've got a scientific fact. The church's interpretation is obviously wrong. But the church taught their interpretation as a fact. And to this day, in scientific classes and all, uh, religion is made to look ridiculous going back to the time of the church and Galileo. And, in, in, and by implication, the Bible ridiculous. When in reality, it wasn't the Bible, it was the Catholic Church and, and their interpretation. So I think that's a good example so far as showing that, that any time that you have an interpretation of the Bible that is at variance with a scientific fact, and I didn't say scientific theory, then you need to re-examine your interpretation of the Bible. Another good example of that might be the 4,000 B.C. Right. Yeah, that is good. Mm -hmm. Usher and his theory of uh, the beginning of time, 4004 B.C., that was a theory that he derived from studying chronology in the Bible. Well, when, when the facts began to unfold, it became obvious that man's been here longer than 4,000 years. Man in a civilized form has been here somewhere around 10,000 years. And then evidence begins to mount that our universe has been here a lot longer than just thousands of years. So what happened is, Christians, because of Bishop Usher's theory that was in their Bible as a fact, fought scientific fact. 
when what we should have done is gone back and say, hey, we need to re-examine our thinking here uh, on this situation because, you see, what Bishop Usher posed, there's no statement in the Bibles of 4004 B.C. Bishop Usher had a theory. And now we know that his theory was inaccurate. Uh, and, and, but, uh, but the problem is when theologians come up with theories, and I'm saying that the theologians have done through the centuries the same things we criticize scientists for doing. They come up with theories uh, about doctrines in the Bible and teach them as if they were dogmatic facts. And then when some fact of science comes along, you've got a conflict, all right? Science, some scientists have done the same thing. They have theories, they teach them as dogmatic fact, and then they force a conflict with something in the Bible. Mark, you had something to say? Uh, I was going to say another interesting thing about the point you brought up with Galileo is when you go back and look at the situation that was going on, most of this, the scientific people at that time did not believe what Galileo was saying either. And so they were in opposition to him. And, and instead of um, really looking at the facts, they tried to hold on to their, their positions. And if you look at science today, that happens a lot. I mean, I work with some of the scientists, and that's one of the things that they talk about a lot is that if you come up with an idea that challenges an established concept, that science in general is very reluctant to change because they've got this established belief and you've got people's reputations on the line and, and all the research that they've done in the past that you're challenging. And you may be perfectly right and all the evidence that you that you put forth is, is defendable, but it takes a whole lot of time and effort to convince these people to admit that they're wrong and to go back and, and find the flaws in their own research and all. And so that's, I've talked with several like students that come and work at the lab during the summer and stuff, and they, they just can't conceive that, that scientists are that way, that they're so uh, reluctant to, uh, to be objective and, and that they're steeped in their own traditions a lot of times. But that's, that's true in science as much as it is in religion. Yeah. The truth is that scientists are human beings. Mm -hmm. And part of, I think, what you're saying there, Mark, is one of man's weakness is pride. And whether you're a scientist or a preacher or a politician, if you have dogmatically advocated something for a number of years and you've written on it all, it is extremely uh, humiliating sometimes. It's very humbling to have somebody come along and prove you're wrong. And the tendency is to defend yourself uh, right down the line on those points. Darren? I was going to make a comment. Whatever happened to those things we were taught back in elementary school? We were talking about this earlier tonight. Um, when I learned about science in elementary school, I was taught that science was you get a theory then you spend your time proving it's wrong. And the further I go through school, it seems the common practice is you get a theory, then you prove it's right. Yeah. The, uh, in fact, um, mo the vast majority of theories that have been postulated by scientists have been proven to be wrong. And the vast majority of hypotheses, obviously, have been proven to be wrong. And, and good science is you have a theory and you began to examine that theory, and the theory ought to open up the door for other experiments. And as you have other experiments, if you've got a good theory, then it should correlate with it. But then if you have other experiments, and this does not correlate with your theory, then you need to re-examine that theory. All right, what we've seen in organic evolution 
is that since Darwin's day, the evidence, the hard evidence that's come in has really been against organic evolution. It just blows the mind, and it almost sounds absurd, I'm sure, or haughty to somebody that's, that's a believer in organic evolution. Uh, if they have, you know, depend on their background, they think that how could that be the case, and, and yet it's so well settled uh, in our textbooks and all. But the hard evidence has been against it. Darwin thought the fossil record would prove his theory is right. He knew there were big gaps there, but he thought as time went on, they'd fill the gaps. Well, now time has went on, and we have accepted the fact that those gaps are fixed, that there's just nothing in between, that they're there. And so the thousands and thousands of fossils that have come forth have just solidified <coughs> those big gaps. They, have, they haven't opened up anything. Uh, the various mechanisms that Darwin proposed in his survival of the fittest uh, have proven to be wrong. For example, uh, Darwin, uh, his theory of, of a giraffe and his long neck is that this animal is eating the leaves off trees and during periods of drought, when it's hard to find anything to eat, He's got to keep stretching further to get something to eat, and as he stretches further, his, his neck becomes more and more elongated, and after he reaches up to a certain point, then he has offspring, and, and some of those things that he has developed is passed on to his, to his offspring. We laugh at that now, but that was uh, part of that theory. I thought your example you used Sunday with throwing up a thousand pennies and all coming down, I thought that was... Well, from a mathematical standpoint, what has happened to another thing that she mentioned that's uh, happened to organic uh, evolution as far as an evidence against it? See, the evolutionist recognizes uh, the design and the intelligence and the complexity of life in the universe and all. And he's, he's always had one argument, though. He says that anything can happen given enough time. In other words, it may not be rational to think that you could throw up a hundred pennies and they would all come down heads. You know, you, you, you just, uh, but if you just kept throwing them up for enough years, eventually, from a mathematical standpoint, it would happen. Well, since matter was eternal, that was no problem. Eventually, you had to have enough time. And so, sure, you may say that the possibility of uh, the amino acids uh, coming together to make this protein is 1 to the 10 to the 160th power, but given an infinite amount of time, that will eventually happen. And so no matter how big your number was, all the way up the ladder as to the mathematical possibilities of this happening, given an infinite, his argument always was, we've got infinite time. And so anything can happen. I know it sounds illogical. I know we don't have any evidence for it, but keep in mind, we've got an infinite amount of time. Well, then what happened is, we don't have that infinite amount of time anymore. Uh, right now, the greatest time frame being placed on our universe, I mean the absolute highest number that I've come in contact with anywhere, is 20 billion years. And that, uh, Mark, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and I know Hugh Ross is a former uh, atheist himself, doctor's degree in physics, and he said that is the highest that any atheist will put on our universe is 20 billion years as they have the evidence, and they give, I won't go into all the evidences and all the, he, he, he obviously is a scientist, but I'm saying he is a scientist is making that statement, that atheist scientists, well, the problem is that 20 billion years is not enough time. 
20 billion years is not going to get us a protein, much less go beyond that. That's 20 billion years will not get us a simple protein. And so it's just simply not enough time. So the, all evidence has gone against it. And now the evolutionists have, have become in almost silly in some of the things that they're proposing to try and have uh, this theory. But again, put yourself in their place. And, and, to, and, and you say, well, you know, that's how, why can't they see some of this evidence? Well, how do we as Christians have preachers in all our different denominations that are so dogmatically, uh, so dogmatic in believing doctrines that are diametrically opposed and yet each are dogmatic? Well, obviously that pride has to play some part. That when, when you have advocated something over a long period of time, it is just simply hard to back up and say, hey, I was wrong on that, you know, even though I taught it that plane all those years. I have a problem, maybe you can help me with this. I have a problem using statistics and trying to prove the absurdity of evolution. If you use statistics like that, aren't you saying that no matter how absurd the statistic is, there's still that chance? Well, no, I'm saying the evolutionists would say that given infinite time. Yeah, but I've seen these videos. Uh, one of the things that Hugh Ross does in his, in his writings and in his, in, you know, the stuff that I've listened to him do, is he talks about, as they discover more and more about life and how complex it is, while the, the, the numbers that they use, the one in so many chances, the, the numbers get bigger and bigger and bigger all the time because as they understand that you know, this has to happen and this kind of condition has to be there, while the chances get more and more and more minute. And he uses for, a, for an example of that the second law of thermodynamics, which says that, that everything tends to go toward disorder. He says, well, there's a, there's a mathematical chance that there's, you know, the, the temperature of atoms in the atmosphere is random, and you get a, a uniform temperature. But in this room, for example, there would be many, many atoms that would be well below freezing in temperature just because of the randomness and the, and the energy that they contain. Well, there's a mathematical chance that all those atoms are going to come together right where you're sitting and freeze you solid. And you can show that mathematically that's possible, but there's no scientist that would believe that would be possible because the mathematical probability is so minute. And he talks about a number, you know, that there, there's it's like one in the 10 to 160 if there's something that the second law of thermodynamics is going to be violated, but nobody would hold that that's going to happen. And so if you can prove something beyond that probability, then it's essentially impossible. Yeah, he said, I know that Clayton pointed out in his lectures that, that from the mathematician's standpoint, anything beyond, I believe it's 10 to the 80th power, was mathematically improbable, that it just wasn't going to happen. And, uh, that, and just like the illustration that Mark gives, nobody believes it. It's never been observed or anything like that. But, but you can really, I'm saying that you can show that it's possible for just about anything mathematically, when in reality it's not. But you can always have that one in so many if you want to work it out in, in that way. But uh, now, I mean, their argument, I'm saying even before the Big Bang Theory or the 20 billion years or anything like that, the argument was never a strong argument to me. You know, it never was. But still, they could make it because they had infinite time. And so they could just always, like, uh, uh, when I, I can remember the fellow I mentioned earlier, Larry Hayes, uh, talking with him. 
that was his always. He couldn't, he didn't really do a, a good job with evolution or any of the points, but he always had infinite time, and that just kept coming up. And then he did the same thing when we got to the Bible with prophecy and all, that, uh, that there was that one chance in so much that, uh, that these predictions could be true. Well, you can show that that would be the case. Uh, for example, Josh McDowell uh, uses as evidence something that can be used in the negative sense. Uh, Josh McDowell, in Evidence of Man's Averting, takes the what we consider eight hard prophecies about Christ from the Old Testament that were fulfilled and that are even paradoxical in nature. And he said the chances of all eight of those coming together in one person would be comparable to having, he gives this number, and then he says of putting two feet of, I believe he uses uh, 50 cent pieces, all over the state of Texas, marking one of them, steering it up, and then pulling one out. But see, the, the atheists could come right back and say, yes, but there is that one thing. And he was just dealing with eight prophecies. But I'm saying that from, you can show any number of things like that mathematically, but yet no one of us believe it's going to happen. You know, but yet, yet that probability would be there. But what is happening now is that uh, with the bringing of things down to 20 billion years, all of that has went out of the door. I mean, it never was a valid argument in my mind anyway, but at least it was an argument. And now it's, it's just gone out the door. It just doesn't, it, it doesn't even exist in, anymore as an argument. It gets to the point that it becomes absurd. Yeah. I mean, the numbers are getting like one out of one out of all the atoms in the universe. I mean, that's, that's how the, the, the statistics are getting. And that's an absurd possibility. It's just ridiculous, dude. Don't you think, too, that sometimes you can get on a... I used to have that problem, like what Darren's talking about. It's like, well, but there is that one chance. I was like, but how do you how you deal with that? But you, you can kind of get caught up in the intellectual ar argument, I think. And like just like if you're... So we, we play this game that where you, 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 you attack with planes and things like that, and you have to roll dice to determine who wins. Well... It'd be sort of like if you if you threw six dice and you hit a good number to hit is ones. If you all six of them were ones, and you did that twenty times in a row, even or not even that, you would suspect something was wrong with those dice. No. Just, it just does not happen. Even with right. only even with one dice, if you could throw one die and it hit a one or whatever ten times in a row, you're going to say there's something They're wrong with dice. That's what and so when you're not in the argument, when you're not caught up in this, you can look back and say, like Mark said, it's just. It is not sure. even, you can't even think of how impossible If you was playing cards and there was somebody that every time you played with him, he always got the best hand, mm -hmm. you would be convinced, even though you couldn't prove it, you would be convinced there was some cheating going on. That, that you're going to say that that cannot happen. He cannot come up with a good hand each time. Right. That, and of course, Hugh Ross makes a good point, as does Clayton on that, that nobody lives by the type of philosophy that is uh, presented by the atheist. That, that the atheist himself cannot, and I think uh, Schaefer does a real good job on this, the atheist himself cannot handle life and live by the philosophy that he says he believes. That he, that he just couldn't handle it, he couldn't deal with his own life in that way. Uh, I think the hardcore evidence from people like this, uh, Thomas and, and Clayton and Hugh Ross, perfectly complements the work by, uh, from a philosophical standpoint by uh, people like Schaefer. I think they, they go together. I think the Bible gives you uh, both, both of it together. Uh, 
let's uh, call it for tonight. And uh, we just simply gave an overview of the book itself. And we'll look at some of the various things about organic evolution. And then in the process, we're going to look at some of the, the evidences for the contrary along the way. And, and try to do it in such a way that, you know, that everybody can put it in their mind so you can have it in a, in a usable way. By the way, as far as worried about carrying all that in your mind, too, remember one thing. There are some outstanding books on all these areas by devout Christians who are well studied. And, and just to even know that these books exist and they're there. And, and if you're studying with that person uh, who is a doctor so-and-so in this area and everything like that, uh, uh, to buy this and give it to him or something similar or put him on John Clayton's list or something of that nature. I'm saying that we need, no one of us can walk around with everything in our mind and we need to take full advantage of, of uh, the study and that's been done by all numbers of Christians within the, within the family. Anybody with any uh, observations before we call it for tonight? I think one, one thing that, that you talked about, but I think it's, you know, to make it real plain, what this book is about, it's talked about evolution and faith, is the, the thing that he ends up saying is it takes so much more of a leap of faith to believe in evolution than it does to believe in Christianity based on the facts. I mean, if you take all the facts for the, the inspiration of the Bible and, and all the things that we look at and then compare it with the facts that the evolutionists look at, I mean, they 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 take what what they would call Christians taking a blind leap of faith, and there's no comparison in the leap of faith. It's not a blind it's not a blind leap by long. But it's interesting, you know. I know I used to wonder, like uh, Mark is saying, when I was younger and coming from the background that I did, I think, why in the world don't God settle this mess? You know, just just speak. You know, do something. You're right in a concrete way. You know that. Uh, uh, these people that are saying there is no good, zap them good, you know, or do something, you know, and you think that way. But obviously there is a reason for God having revealed himself in the way that he has. And I think there are statements in the Bible, like when I, Jesus made the statement, uh, Father, I thank you that you have revealed these things, or hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed it unto babes, for so it seemed good in your sight, that God, uh, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. Ask and you shall receive. Just think about Jesus wanting people to believe who he was and yet making statements that you will never know me if you're not seeking, asking, or knocking, or hungering, or thirsting. That you'll, you'll, never, come, you'll never come to know me. That uh, Think of the prophecy in Isaiah 53 that he would be a comely man. There would be no beauty in him that any should desire that uh, God has revealed himself in such a way that he allows us absolute free choice so we can reject him. And that before we're going to come to him, we're going to have to first reach a point where we want what is right. I mean, so I think we, we need to watch ourselves when we uh, leave the impression we want something else or we began to maybe challenge the, the will of God and why he's done it in the way he has. And I think in the final analysis that as we grow, we can appreciate the way that God has done it and, and the reason that he's done it in this way, that uh, uh, the church, the, the family of God, 
is going to be limited to those individuals who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, who are seeking, and who want a relationship with God. This really makes sense, too. I mean, I, I had such a problem with that, but, you know, it's just like if you're in a relationship with a, a family or a, a girlfriend or whatever it is, you, if, if, say, a girlfriend, you want them to like you just because. Right. You, you don't want to have to make them like you. Sure. Here's this gal that you're interested in, and you know that once you tell her you got a million dollars in your pocket, that she's going to be interested in you. But if you, and, and, and uh, some guys, uh, Ted Kennedy, for example, would have no problem because of, of flipping that million dollars out. That's fine for him because he's very superficial anyway that, when it comes to relations, obviously. But if it's like you said, you honestly want a relationship where the person wants you uh, and, and wants that, then you can't pull that million dollars out. And you, you, you have to allow... Uh, a total free will and free choice yeah, the there. Same way. Right. I believe that uh, in the dating process that uh, that girls constantly go through in their mind, you know, it, it, is that person really interested in me as a person? I think they have to settle that in their mind. And I think that uh, men who have wealth or super good jobs and things like that, they have to always be fighting in their mind, you know, that is that person really interested in me? are just the type of life and things like that I can provide and, and you've got to weed all that out in your in your mind. Any other observations? But I believe that when we get through, of course we've looked at evidences a long time, I really believe that uh, you can wind up saying, I feel perfectly comfortable in saying that I have not even the slightest hint of a doubt in my mind uh, concerning God or concerning the inspiration of the Bible. This is just, it's just nothing there. I believe the, the, you can wind up to the point where the, the evidence is overwhelming uh, and, that, and you can even, we can begin to understand even why God has done it in the way that he has. One, one of the things that uh, Hugh Ross also said that, that was real interesting and it was early, early on when he came to, to, to the United States, he said that he had who would talk and talk and talk to these professors about becoming Christians and about Christianity. And he said it didn't take him very long to convince them that the evidence has supported the Bible, but it took them many, many, much, much longer to convince them to, be, to submit their life to, to Christ. And he said that, and I think it's true with, with many people, it's, it's not so much a problem of intellect a lot of times. You, a lot of times you can take care of that problem. But it becomes a problem of the will because the implications that are involved in becoming Christians many times is more than somebody wants to yeah. to submit to because it's, it calls for a total change of life. Yeah, and there's a sign down the road on one of the churches. I forget how it's worded, but uh, 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 one must repent before he will believe, and I, I think that's true. I, the guy I mentioned about that I met over in Chattanooga in the service center, making these statements about Paul and everything like that. Uh, he was obviously homosexual. Uh, see, the homosexual who believes in God, and he wants to hold on to his homosexuality, and yet he honestly believes in God, and he wants some salvation in Christ. Well, the way he gets around the dilemma of all those statements in the Bible is that he puts Paul as a heretic out here by himself uh, who really messed up Christianity, that Jesus really didn't say anything 
about homosexuality or anything like that. That was Paul's own bias, his prejudice. He was speaking out of his own environment. He was speaking out of his, his uh, Pharisee background. Uh, he really messed up Christianity. And so they embrace, and so we've got homosexual churches. We've got churches that receive homosexuals. They embrace that. Well, his problem in believing in Paul, and of course when we got into conversation, what I basically was trying to show is that everything that Paul said was harmonious with what Jesus said, what was said in the Old Testament, and that really Jesus didn't say anything new. He wanted to kick the Old Testament out too. See, the Old Testament uh, had the death penalty for homosexuals. So in his reasoning, he kicked the Old Testament out and he kicked Paul out, and he wound up with absolutely nothing except Jesus. says the only thing that's worth anything in the Bible is a part that's written in red that's said by, by Jesus, you know, and that's it. And, but I'm saying that he had a very biased approach there, that, uh, that he, it's difficult for him to be honest in the other realm as long as he wants to be. In other words, he needs to at least be willing to re-examine his homosexuality. And as long as his mind is such as, I am going to be this no matter what, and God will take me as I am, then he will always find some way to kick Paul out the door, or the same with the Old Testament. And I think that... Uh, in many ways, it's interesting to me with Hugh Ross. Look at his background, and look how strong his faith. And same with John Clayton. And then you see other people brought up in a religious background that are out there wallowing with the pigs. That obviously there's something within us uh, that, that determines, you know, that whether or not we're going to be honest with that information. I'm curious how, how the conversation got started. Uh, we started, first started talking about cars, and... Uh, then uh, he, uh, what was it? I always work to get religion in. And uh, when I get, I could tell he was very intelligent. He's he well read. He was just, man, just spouting off all kinds of information. And, you know, and, and we got into health. Of course, I'm interested in health and, and uh, all like that. Oh, and then we got into some of the things that's happening in society, you know. He was real concerned about some friend of his that, uh, had been somebody had stole something from or anything like that. So then I brought in. I said that I think what we're finding out is that we kick, have kicked God and the Bible out of our society, and I think our high crime rate is just simply telling us that that we cannot exist. You know that we you you, you can't. I said you can't have any absolute laws. How do you say those things are right unless you got a creator? Well, then that got it over in the discussion. He said, well, he believed in God and Jesus, but then just out of the clear blue that Paul was a heretic and he was very dogmatic on some statements and then got into the thing about the, about the Old Testament, you know. I think that's something that, that's something that I think there's one thing I've learned out here is it's, it's been that you can bring that sort of thing into conversations. I mean, I, for the longest time it was like, well, you can't talk religion and politics. You can and you can if, if you if you like you're saying you work to get things into the conversation it'll just naturally come up if you talk long enough. people are interested in it uh, when I was in high school and did not go to church uh, while I was in in my senior high school my best friend uh, my dad stepfather was a career soldier my best friend's dad was a ch was a chaplain in the military and I had all see I had been brought up and had the Bible read to me had went to church as a child and everything but then other readings that I had done, and also my stepfather was an unbeliever and an educated unbeliever. So I had a mind that on the one hand, uh, emotionally, I wanted to believe the Bible, but intellectually, I felt I couldn't. And that was my dilemma, that emotionally I was attracted to it, but intellectually, I just felt that there were too many problems. And I can remember 
hoping that they, I wouldn't bring it up. Uh, not many teenage boys would not, but when I would go in his house or anything, that I would actually hope that his dad would bring up the discussion and that maybe he could answer some of these questions. In the whole year that I ran around with his son, was in his house many times, they never once invited me to a church service, even though I wasn't going anywhere. The, the subject of religion never came in discussion. Uh, the boy never discussed it with me. His dad never discussed it with me. It, in other words, obviously, they just avoided bringing up religion in a discussion. And I'm saying I wanted it brought up, but I didn't bring it up myself. Uh, everybody's going to die. And everybody has concerns about whether or not there's a God or anything. But I think that uh, it, it, the, the thing to not do is get emotional or lash out. At, like this guy was a, obviously a, it was a homosexual, in my judgment, uh, based on several other things in the observation. But, you know, I think he ought to be treated real nice. There's no need to get emotional because he said that Paul was a heretic or anything. That's not going to change him, but just to reason with him.